Welcome back to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart. I'm the director of the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism for a few more days. With us today, we have Winter Wilson talking to us about her interest in environmental communications. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We were talking before you know, the podcast started a bit about COVID-19, and that's one of the main themes of this podcast series is how are our students, how are our graduates, how are faculty, you know, managing to keep their forward momentum going in spite of this, uh, what is a, a general delay, you know, in, in everybody's life. It seems that we've been, our lives have sort of been put on pause a bit. But in your case with COVID-19, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts uh, as it relates to climate issues, and because that's that's been something that we have heard talked about in some circles, although we do spend a lot of time thinking more and talking more about the economic impact of COVID-19 and, and some of the medical issues around COVID-19. But, but we do hear some about the climate change uh, issue. So I, I'd like to have you as a climate change communication expert, give us some thoughts about that from your perspective. I'm by no means an expert on any of this, but I, I, I do find it pretty fascinating Personally, COVID-19 hasn't affected me much. I was so lucky to just graduate. Also, all my work I could do remote. I've been really lucky through all of this. So trying to play my part and, and stay inside and, and socially distance. I'll be going to grad school. I'll be doing a master's in environmental management this fall. Everything's sort of on track in that way. I've been thinking a lot about it, what, what it means related to climate change. Um, a lot of the discussions I've had with peer review professors over the past few weeks have focused on it. I guess there are a few different sides to things. One is that with COVID-19, we're seeing more misinformation than ever. I have been in situations where I haven't been able to tell the difference between something that's not factual and factual. I'll send something to my dad and he'll be like, you know, I don't think this is true. And then I'm like, wait, I'm the journalist here. I should be be able to have the appropriate level of media literacy to understand whether or not something is, is accurate or misinformation. That has been a challenge. Also on the same sort of communication spectrum, um, how do you get people to act? This has been something, a question that's been on my mind related to climate change. COVID-19 is a really interesting example of the immediacy of a problem. So let's figure out how to explain this the best. But it's one of the few times where I've been in a position where if I do something, I am very, very immediately impacting someone else's life. So if I go out and go right now, I mean, they're opening things back up and people are congregating in certain areas. I've heard a lot of reports of bars and restaurants violating the social distancing protocols. Um, if you participate in that and you spread COVID-19 to someone who is immunocompromised or is more vulnerable, then and they pass away, that's that's you impacting someone else's life. And with climate change, the same sort of behavioral problem where if you choose things that are less environmentally friendly, but maybe more convenient or more of what you want to be able to do, that's also impacting something that's affecting people's lives. COVID-19 is much more immediate. And so my interests have been, how do you communicate with people in a way that they really understand the importance of taking precautions and being proactive in the process of saving other people's lives? So that's been a point of topic I've been interested in. And then finally, yeah, there's another question of 
COVID-19 is sort of keeping people inside. There's not as much transportation in a lot of areas. And there is a lot of misinformation around this as well. But in a lot of areas, they're seeing blue skies for the first time in decades. And it's potentially having a positive impact on the environment. A lot of people have, I don't, I don't want to say anything that's inaccurate because I don't know the extent to which this is happening, but there are places in which they're decreasing regulations now to allow for picking things up faster and, and getting back on track. I don't know if this is going to be a positive thing for the environment, but I hope that it's something climate change is going to cause a lot of these more immediate challenges, whether it's natural disasters or other extreme weather events or extreme heat, things like that, that are going to pose challenges to us in the future, or that there is potential for climate change to help the spread of disease. So what the future looks like in terms of climate changes could potentially pose some similar threats to what we're seeing now with COVID-19. Understanding how to prepare and seeing how people change the ways in which they do business or operate will be really interesting moving forward. I hope there are lessons that are learned from this to be more prepared for other global challenges or, or even more immediate challenges in different areas. Now, I think I've heard you make a statement about yourself that you're interested in environmental communication. I am interested in, in environmental communication. So I'll be going to Yale this fall for a two-year degree, and I'm really interested in interdisciplinary problem solving in the climate change adaptation sector. And I think a lot of that can happen with the appropriate interdisciplinary communication, climate change communication, environmental communication. I'm interested in being also in sort of the social entrepreneurship, project management side of things as well. I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I do hope to continue to, to write a bit that might not be journalistically or in hard news. I'm hoping to, to still be a strong communicator around some of these issues. What are the distinctions that you would make between someone who is a environmental communicator uh, as opposed to an environmental journalist? Are those the same thing or, or are those different? I mean, an environmental journalist is a, a communicator, but I don't think a, a communicator is always a journalist. This has been something that has been a challenge for me my whole undergraduate experience is where do I want to play a part in all of this? My climate change communication thesis that was sort of open to all communicators. So um, obviously, I believe that all communicators have a responsibility to adhere to journalistic principles and, and relay truthful, factual information. But sometimes there's a lot in the environmental world of environmental advocacy. I would say those are still communicators. They're still communicating information. Journalists obviously adhere by a pretty strict set of ethics and other principles. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which journalists have been maybe a little more resistant to thinking about climate change communication in different ways. It's sometimes really, really difficult to figure out, especially when you're operating in a landscape that has so much misinformation or in a field that has so much misinformation. How much do journalists themselves have a responsibility to consider what might be the best way to communicate climate change? For journalists, they're seeking the truth and reporting it. But there are ways in which I think news outlets, newsrooms could re reconceptualize some of their reporting and writing to, to be able to relay the truthful information more, more effectively. Or, I mean, there are lessons, too, on the side of debunking, which is if you're a journalist and you put in the headline the, the myth that you're trying to debunk, and I think it's Sina Lewandowski and John Cook who do the debunking handbook. They're 
really interesting social scientists. If you put the myth in the headline that you're trying to debunk and you say such and such is false, over time people actually don't really remember the fact that it's false, they just remember sort of the core piece of that sentence or that headline, which is actually the myth. So there are ways in which when journalists are trying to, to do no harm, they could actually be perpetuating misinformation or myths rather than debunking things or, or, or talking about climate change um, in a way that isn't prone to misinformation. I think there's been a movement in a lot of areas of journalism to actually be do more weight of evidence reporting. That's gotten much, much better. To answer your question, there are differences, absolutely. I probably will go more to the climate change communication side of things, but it, you know, I love, I love journalism. I've loved magazine feature writing during this time at OU, but I'm really interested in the ways in which also impact change. I guess I've just been interested in, in ways in which I can use communication to solve certain climate change problems. That's, that's been, I think, the direction that I'm moving with being passionate about environmental issues. And I, I respect and I love journalists and the work that they do. I think I'm moving a little bit more away from, from journalistic reporting. I do think that some of the ethical standards, which have changed over time, you know, to be sure, if you go back 100 years, you know, journalists would have approached things very differently than we would today. And certainly 200 years, you know, those those standards would have evolved enormously. And I can see that the way the standards are now interpreted, there it may feel difficult to you know, to reveal what your own thoughts are about what you're covering. And it always feels like thin ice when you venture into, you know, advocacy. I think we are starting to see examples of a bit more advocacy type reporting around COVID-19 because it feels like uh, it's kind of a life and death situation. And when it feels like there are people on one side who are actively distorting what's happening it's very tempting to push back as hard as as possible to call them out on that i can see where um, environmental communications could be an attractive option to uh, to be more proactive journalists have just <laughs> incredible pressure on them to perform and, and, and meet quotas and, and produce lots of content and multimedia content and being a not many people who are reporting on climate change historically, I guess, have, you know, often journalists will get pushed into a, a track or write an article about, about one of these complex issues. Maybe it's climate change, maybe it's COVID-19. And I don't, I definitely, I really respect people who are writing on these topics. Sometimes though, people aren't experts in the topics. And so understanding which questions to ask, understanding how to translate really complex information, that's really difficult especially when you have to turn a, an article around in a couple of hours or in a day or being able to relay the, the information truthfully, factually, understand how to best piece it together in a story. That's, that's all really, really, really difficult. I just found that I really loved environmental communication and problem solving through, I went through the Stanford um, University Innovation Fellows Program and was exposed to innovation, entrepreneurship, things like that. And I loved using my skills I had learned at OU in environmental studies and journalism in the Honors Doyle College in that capacity, engaging with people who are problem solving, maybe at lower levels. Not to say that journalists aren't problem solvers. They are so critical and, and those stories are the things that prompt the people to, to solve the problems that they're talking about. 
and climate change communication is a problem that that journalists are, are tackling right now how to how to best relay the information i do wonder i mean how of the responsibility is on the journalist also maybe say at the end of an article about COVID-19, oh, here are the funds that you could donate to related to this clinic that we just reported on that's doing great work surrounding COVID-19. Or, you know, how much of an impact could that have? Also, at what point does the do no harm thing get a little bit muddy for journalists in terms of the ways in which they communicate? But Overall, out of all of this, there's been a lot of misinformation, but there's been also been a lot of fantastic reporting. And I'm sure there are, there are many, many GRIP students who are out there really carrying out fantastic and truthful and factual information um, and communicating that to the general public, which is more important than anything right now. You mentioned uh, a few moments ago that you were a documentarian and, and I know that I was able to be at the screening of one of those and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that documentary, but even more specifically, what were some of the things you, you learned about documentary making? Maybe not so much the technical things that are obviously very important, but just the challenge of making a documentary and telling the story in a way that you're happy with. The documentary I did was called Injection and Outrage. I'm still hoping to, to publish it. I might end up just putting it out on, on YouTube, but it it was a documentary about or is a documentary about injection well waste so fracking waste when you frack produces this they call it brine water but there's a the halliburton loophole it's like a legal loophole companies don't have to disclose what's in the brine waste and so there's a lot of controversy around that a lot of people have done independent testing and found radioactivity within the brine waste people are worried about how hazard it might be and then there's also this pattern where a lot of the, the waste is shipped to these injection wells. Athens, I think in 2015, was the number one recipient of injection well waste in the country. The waste is basically put very far underground, but there have been a lot of concerns about just not knowing what's in the brine waste specifically because they don't have to say anything. And also not really having the capacity to test and do large groundwater um, testing over time. Um, and once there might, if there is a problem and something happens, Athens especially is riddled with sort of underground. We have we had a lot of mining, so a lot, there are lots of holes in the ground. And Dr. Natalie Cruz talks about that in the film. There are just a lot of questions surrounding whether or not this is a good idea, why the waste is being shifted to one of the poorest counties in Ohio, even from out of state, and why there isn't much receptivity to the local activists or people asking questions. There are also a lot of legal challenges where people, the Athens city has been able to say no, no fracking, but the Athens county ne hasn't necessarily been able to reject the fracking waste. Just a lot of questions. So I did a documentary focused on Felicia Mettler, who's a local activist. She's really interesting. She's the mother and she lives on, on family land, sort of had never heard of fracking waste or any of that stuff or fracking before the injection well moved in close to her parents' home. When she talks about the bird bath rippling at her parents' place when sort of the injection well went up, she started asking questions. Some local activists went to her. She sort of started to step up and founded uh, Torch Can Do, which is a, a, a local activist group in, in Torch that's fighting against injection wells. The documentary itself sort of outlines her narrative with some supplemental contextual interviews by some scientists and the county commissioner, Chris Schmiel. 
you know, it was a learning process for me. All the technical things, yeah, that, I mean, that was just <laughs> first documentary ever. You realize that there are so many things that can make your life much, much easier had you known before you tried to splice things before adding audio or things like that, you know. So that was a huge learning curve. But overall, I mean, it was an interesting learning experience in, in how to craft a narrative like that. Yeah, how to be a journalist, too. I, I, we're talking about advocacy versus communication versus journalism and, and how those things clash or fit together. As someone who knows a lot of the people involved in all of these things, I wanted to go as far as I could to provide the contextual information. So it wasn't just the activist speaking. So it wasn't this piece that was just sort of like a commercial for Torch Can Do. That's, that wasn't my intention. I was trying to provide sort of an investigative journalistic documentary that actually looked into the fact that there are so many questions and so few answers. And that's maybe kind of a problem for the region. I mean, I had I learned a lot about journalistic ethics. I learned a lot about interviewing, about in documentaries, you get a lot closer to the people that you are talking to and interviewing to um, because you have to have sort of a relationship with those people, especially with very stressful issues. You are sort of fighting on the front lines of these challenges to, to affect change. The journalistic ethics was a thing as well that I, I struggled with a lot, trying to provide as much context as possible, tell a story, but at the same time, make sure but I'm getting all the different sides. Um, it was really difficult to, to get in touch with, with the people that I wanted to get in touch regarding the, the K&H injection well and oil and gas, um, division of the ODNR, Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And so I've hesitated to publish it because I still want a little bit more information from other people in it. It was such a fantastic learning experience. I'm now producing a mini documentary series about um, sort of a applying climate change communication techniques to tell the stories of people who are sort of from unexpected backgrounds working in the climate sector. So it, it's definitely given me a, a love for visual communication and how powerful that can be. Also for just the process of telling the story and what it means to be selecting what you include in the story and going out of your way to get context in certain areas, make sure it's a holistic picture of what's happening. Yeah, I've appreciated the craft and, and I'm looking forward to applying that to other stories in the future. Well, the last area that I, I was thinking would be interesting for our listeners to hear about is to have you talk about the influence of your family and your parents on your choices. Uh, you, you grew up, for the most part, in Athens and uh, your parents moved here when you were quite young. And um, I know your father is involved in media making as well. So I think it would be interesting to to know how much of their influence shows up in your in your interest uh, that you have about environmental issues. Yeah, I think I had a very unique childhood. I was really lucky because my parents opted for having so they're so they're self-employed. They own a production company. That's just the two of them. My father's a, a, a voice actor um, and a TV host on, on real rail adventures and a lot of Swiss tourism projects, talking about the Swiss rail system um, and doing some, some travel shows. And my mom's a videographer. Uh, she also owns a, a small business where she does wine bottle art. Yeah, you know, they opted from the time that my sister and I were born to have jobs that gave them the flexibility to be able to travel with us. At the time, on cross-country road trips, Across the United States, hiking up mountains 
in you know Great Basin National Park, seven, eight-year-old Winter was not thrilled to have to climb mountains with her parents. But looking back on that, you know, they would always say, you know, one day I think you'll appreciate this. We would do cross-country trips out to Washington State where my grandparents lived every summer. We'd stop at all the national parks. When we got a little older, we did a couple of trips to uh, Europe and backpacked, car camped around there. I was really, really lucky to have parents who did have jobs that were much more flexible. And that was a choice that they made. They said, we may not have the fanciest house or, or any of that stuff, but we're going to spend quality time with our kids. And they were creative. And yeah, they're, they're visual communicators now. I mean, they're, they're, they, they work in PR and, and commercials and things like that. I think growing up, that exposure to just being outside and outdoors. My grandfather was an environmentalist. My dad does a lot of environmental work. He wrote a book. We deep energy retrofitted our home in Athens. And I think our energy savings went to like, we had 80% energy savings at the end of it. It was something pretty ridiculous. My dad wrote a book about it. And and my sister and I were there, even in our diapers, hitting hammers on walls and things like that. And just growing up in that household in which we had a responsibility to eat organic or make sure we were doing our part to, to make the least impact on the environment as possible. And then we would take off and do these backpacking trips, camping trips across the United States. There's a video of me when I was like eight years old in front of the glaciers and I'm like close to tears thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to show these to, to my kids when I'm older. And in those moments, I think I didn't always appreciate them. And, and But looking back on it, were just such fantastic experiences and they really did shape a lot of my development, my personal development. I knew going into my undergrad that I wanted to do something related to environmental work. I just didn't know where in that field I wanted to create an impact. Um, and that's something my parents also sort of instilled in my sister and I, is creating a positive impact on, on the world or, or doing your part. So I would say I attribute quite a bit of, of and, and, and they've also just been this incredible, <laughs> these incredible support factors, like my, my entire life, I, they've, they've really been there every step of the way. So yeah, now, I mean, I've had the flexibility. They were so supportive undergrad. It would give me the drive and the ambition and the, the ability to work hard and, and not worry about much else. You know, I got a scholarship for college and that paid for college. My mom always said, you know, we, we supported you and, and told you don't work in, in high school because we knew that you were going to have that paid back in college. And so college has been super flexible for me because I did have a full ride scholarship. I was able to explore environmental communication, climate change, interdisciplinary design, things like that. So yeah, and then that's brought me to here. I love environmental communication. I love going into an environmental management program and hoping to start a consultancy in the future. But I do attribute so much of my success and finding my passion and uh, just being passionate about environmental issues as well to my parents. I say thank you a lot to them and it doesn't quite capture all of it, but I did have a very unique upbringing. I think that's informed a lot of what I do now. I've heard this story, but I doubt many of our listeners would have heard the story about your first trip to Athens as a family and the impact that had on your parents' decision to move to Athens. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that story to close us out, that would be wonderful. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and I lived there until I was three. And my parents were trying to find a place that, you know, my my dad was able to do all his sort of voice commercial work and where the clients were uh, in sort of Cincinnati, Columbus, and 
Cleveland, there are a number of cities. Athens is sort of in a really good spot for all of that. They would take off and do these trips and go camp in different places. And they used to come to Athens and camp here. They fell in love with Casa Nueva, the local restaurant, the ways in which Athens was so passionate about local food and community, yeah, environmental issues, things like that. Um, they really, really love the community here. It's been the perfect place to grow up. And we would come, but every time we would come to Athens and sort of uh, look at places and, um, and, and see this, the, the community, uh, we would always just, we would always come and camp. It was always a big trip. And so when my parents, told me at age three that I was, we were moving to Athens. I was like, yay, we're gonna, we're gonna move to Athens and live in a tent, uh, <laughs> which, which hasn't been the case. But that, yeah, that was the, the story of our transition here. Well, Athens is the better for it. And uh, it, it turns out that it's worked out pretty well for you as well as a stepping stone to Yale. And then who knows what's next for you. But we're gonna be cheering you on and celebrating with you each step of the way. So, Winter Wilson, thank you for being on Scripps Talks. Thank you so much for the invitation.